Well, we've been in this lengthy discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, focusing on really the broad subject of idolatry. And of course, uh, it doesn't take much effort for us to um, recognize and to cite numerous examples of uh, idolatry, both societal idolatry, even some of the idols that are on our own hearts. We don't have to look beyond ourselves to recognize the persistence of idolatrous inclination at minimum to full-on overt idolatry as a practice at the outer extremities. Of course, when we think about uh, the events of this past week and the, uh, the school shooting at the Christian school in Tennessee, and all of the, I'm not sure how much you paid attention, I didn't pay a lot of attention, but enough to sort of see this rather clearly, <clears throat> there is a, 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 a manifestation of really persistent idolatry that's really taken root in our culture in significant ways. And it is really this idolatrous belief that we are the ones that define who we are. We are the ones that define what is real about us, what is true about us. We are then the ones who define what we are to value. We are the ones who define what we are entitled to. And insofar as those things do not line up with what we, as now self-proclaimed gods, determine to be so, we are then justified in our own demonic yet in our minds, righteous indignation at those who would perpetrate such violence against us as gods. What we are seeing in our day and time is the most vivid display of idolatry that we would need to to see to understand what what it can look like and certainly what it can lead to. And it doesn't just manifest itself in the transgender movement per se. It manifests itself in pretty much every facet of our society, in every cultural movement, in our government institutions, in our educational institutions, in the degradation of values and priorities that are rooted in something other than ourselves. Um, It is pervasive in its impact and in its demonstration. And ultimately, I've been sort of hearing this from people I trust. I've been repeating it to you and into other settings that it seems to me like uh, the, the future, apart from a new and incredibly comprehensive and very kind and gracious work of God, the trajectory is not good. If you have this kind of self-styled, individualized idolatry that becomes rooted in the culture and in the society and in the influential institutions of a society, and it wreaks the havoc that this kind of demonic idolatry wreaks, you have a recipe for all manner of discord, 
and even violence, even, even tribalism uh, that, that could be unlike anything we've ever experienced in our nation for sure, but is not uncommon the world round and certainly not uncommon in history. And so I think that as I've been saying, as I've been thinking, as I've been convicted by this study, this is not a time for us to wring our hands in despair or to feel a sense of hopelessness at the decline of our culture or to have some kind of longing for the quote-unquote good old days. By the way, that's a mirage. You understand that, right? There is no such thing as the good old days after Genesis 3. It's all been a virtual disaster since then. But nevertheless, we experience the corruption of the fall in uniquely profound ways from season to season and epic to epic. And so I understand the the nature of that and the way that we tend to experience it. But the bottom line is that when we come to a timeless and spirit-inspired letter like 1 Corinthians... My heart just overflows with a sense of joy and gratitude for the goodness of the Lord to give us his word and to provide such clear and helpful instruction so that we can root our thinking and that we can make decisions based upon the wisdom of God's word and we can conduct our lives in such a way that we are found faithful in the midst of a society that's falling down around us and it's succumbing to all manners, manner of idolatry. So this is a, a really timely study. It's a really, I think, helpful study for me. It has been anyway, at least. And so just kind of remind us about some of the, the road that we've been on. We, we are trying to kind of basically answer the question, how can we remain faithful? How can we stand? How can we walk surely? How can we respond appropriately to the Apostle Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, that we need to take heed lest we fall. How, how can we do that? And we started by just making the point that in order to stand in, in faithfulness in the midst of an idolatrous world and in the face of the cravings even of our own idolatrous hearts at times, that we need to resist prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history. And we saw the Apostle Paul really take us through several occasions throughout the history of God's people, really centering primarily in the Exodus, but really dealing with the wilderness wanderings and the provision of the Lord and the deliverance of the Lord and the kindness of the Lord and the rebellion and the grumbling and the complaining and the ultimate idolatry and sensuality of God's people in the face of all of God's goodness and kindness and provision. And so in order for us to be reminded that these are tendencies that can creep in even to God's people who are witnesses of his saving work and his kind and miraculous provision that even in the face of that, that otherwise godly people or professing godly people can find themselves quickly led astray into all manner of idolatry and its associated indulgences and sinful activity. So this this principle that the Apostle Paul raises up of us taking stock of what the Lord has revealed to us over and over again. He says, this is as an example. This was given to you or written for you so that you'll be instructed. 
that we're to take stock of what the Lord has revealed, even in Old Testament narrative chronicling the account of his redemptive work amongst his people, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, that that is to be instructive for us. It is to remind us that we can easily be led astray, and ultimately God is the judge of all manner of idolatry. That idolatry is not something that gets a pass, in other words. So we recounted a lot of that history that the Apostle Paul references, and we did what the Apostle Paul instructed us to do. We, we took a close look at it. We thought through it, and we considered what we need to learn and take away from this redemptive history that hopefully will help us to resist this pride of presumption that somehow, you know, once the Lord saves us, then everything is okay and everything will work according to our sense of how things should work. And then last week, we dove more deeply into our second principle, and that's for us to resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. This took us down to primarily verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And we made a few notes about this. We, we cited a few important points about this instruction, this helpful and hopeful instruction on overcoming temptation. And the first thing we looked at is we noted that temptation doesn't have to mean temptation, that when we think about temptation, it is really the word, the same word that Scripture uses for trial, and it only becomes temptation when our flesh we're lured away by our flesh. We are faced with many trials of various kinds, James says. And in the face of those trials, we're to consider it joy because we know that in testing us in these ways, it produces maturity. It's one of the ways that the Lord matures his people with the ultimate aim that we would be lacking nothing. And so in the face of those kinds of tests... It is a source or a cause, I should say, of utter joy in the Lord as we face them, unless we are lured away, James goes on to teach, by our own desires, by our own sinful desires. And of course, the Apostle Paul mentions these evil desires that were manifest in the people of Israel, and we are to guard against those evil desires. We are to recognize what is really happening at the point of desire. It's a critical matter for us to consider. But to recognize that temptation in general is not some ominous thing. We don't need to view it as some ominous thing that is just likely to constantly entice us towards sin and probably entice us towards sin in a victorious kind of way to where we're the the perpetrator of the sin, not the victor over it. We also noted that No temptation is unique and thereby uniquely insurmountable. The Apostle Paul makes that plain. He says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, that is not of humanity is another way to translate that that phrase. And so this is a a, a great comfort to us in some ways. It's also a hedge against us thinking that somehow the temptations that we're facing are so unique and so specialized 
that really no one can understand what we're going through. And by the way, that gives me an open door towards self-pity. You know, how, how difficult it has to be for me compared to how it is for you. The Apostle Paul's like, no, there's no, there's no temptation that you're facing that's not common to man. This is also a call for us to engage in genuine, vibrant body life in the fellowship of God's people, knowing that we come together as common men and women who are all susceptible to temptation, who all are in this fight and in this struggle together. And so part of our fellowship, part of our our common experience in life in the body of Christ is one of holding each other accountable and of restoring those who fall with gentleness and with a sense of caution ourselves so that we don't fall. And it, it thrusts us forward into genuine life in the body of Christ. Not some kind of perfunctory attendance consumer mindset, but no, these are, these are the people that I am sharing life with and that I'm struggling with and I'm growing with. And, and these are the people that I'm called to serve and to hold accountable and to hold up when they're weak. It's a, it's a deep call to genuine life in Christ amongst God's people. We also noted that in and through temptation, God's faithfulness and care is very specific and very intentional. We see this in the second part of verse 13. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, We picked this up at the very end of our time last week, and we didn't get to spend hardly any time on this, so I want to pick this up and and unpack this last uh, principle under this heading of resisting common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. This, This matter of recognizing that in and through temptation, God's faithfulness is, and His care, I should say, is specific and intentional. It's specific and intentional. The first thing I would want you to notice under this heading is that notice in this verse that God is the active agent. It's easy for us when we come across a a, a passage about temptation for us to immediately begin to think about ourselves and to reflect upon our struggle with temptation and to even possibly feel a sting of of shame and guilt because we know that we have fallen to temptation or we know that we're struggling with some kind of gripping and besetting sin. And so we come across a verse like this and it might be somewhat common for us to become immediately reflective upon ourselves and upon our struggle and upon our failures and and to really try to wrestle with what, you know, what the Lord wants us to learn about ourselves and about how we can overcome. But when you look at this passage, it is God who is the active agent here. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will also provide the way of escape. This verse, this passage on being faithful in the face of temptation has more to say about God and His faithfulness and His care and His provision than it has to say about us and our struggle. In the midst of trials and temptation, and here, here I think is maybe one possible takeaway from this, that in the midst of trials and temptation, 
We are routinely, and I might even say often, certainly often subtly, not knowingly, but very subtly, we're lulled into a sense of what we might call necessary self-sufficiency and autonomy. Here's what I mean by that. When I say necessary self-sufficiency and autonomy, this is the try-harder mindset in the face of temptation, in the struggle against sin. It's, it's a, a deeply erroneous train of thought that convinces us that if we simply try harder not to fall and work harder at standing firm, then eventually we will be victorious over temptation and sin. This is what I mean by this mindset of this necessary or needful self-sufficiency, this sense of autonomy that can creep in. We're struggling with sin And as I said, when we start looking at verses on sin, we tend to reflect upon our struggle and we reflect upon even our failures and our weaknesses. And and then we immediately go to this place of, I've got to try harder. I've got to do better. I've got to work harder at this. I've got to stand more firmly. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. And that's why I make the point at the very outset here that this passage is pointing to God as the actor, first and foremost. We need to see that. It's in this mode of, what you might call spiritual bootstrapping, you know, to pull myself up by my bootstraps, that what happens in those seasons is if, you, if, you, if your experience is anything like mine, and I think Scripture would testify to this as well, but it's when we're sort of spiritually bootstrapping ourselves in the midst of sin and temptation, and we're in this try-harder, work-harder kind of mode of thinking, that God begins to seem more and more and more, and more distant from the struggle. I don't know if you've noticed that. The harder we work, the more distant God seems to us in our struggle. And it's like that, you know, that image of a football coach on the sidelines or even possibly up in the up in the booth, you know, up in the press box and the coach has called the play and now he's distant off on the sidelines or up in the booth and he's saying, "No, nah, it's just up to you. You're the player. You got to execute." It's up to you. Execute. 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 I'll be up here, but just get it done. We we can be lulled very subtly into this mindset that gradually makes God seem more and more and more distant from the struggle that we're in. That's the very antithesis to what this passage is pointing us to. When trying... When when the trying, I should say, becomes detached from the trusting, our struggles become characterized not by persevering joy and endurance, but by resentment, resignation, and self-pity. Let me say it again. When trying becomes detached from trusting, our struggle becomes characterized not by persevering joy and endurance that James talks about, But it becomes more characterized by resentment, resignation, and self-pity. We can eventually begin to resent God, even, for not answering our prayers to help us. We can resign ourselves to the fact that, well, we live in a fallen world, and, you know, i got this family that I was raised in, and I've got these tendencies that I just can't seem to let go of, and... 
The Lord's going to save me from all this anyway in the end. I mean, we, we, we can find ourselves moving toward a place of just resignation that this is kind of the way things are going to be. And certainly that self-pity that we've already talked about, where we begin to stare at our navel, (laughs) the proverbial navel-gazing in these moments where we begin to only see what we're going through compared to what we're going through so that no one else can understand what we're going through. If you could only understand what I'm going through, then you'd understand how difficult it is, that kind of thing. This is what happens when we don't see that God is the one who is acting. God is the primary actor as the faithful provider in the midst of our struggle with trials and temptation. When we sort of, you might say, try to take the reins and go into this try-harder mode, this work-harder mode, that only leads to a sense of distance, which leads to repeated failure. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy which leads to these potential negative outcomes of resentment, resignation, and self-pity. In 1942, C.S. Lewis published his famous Screwtape Letters. Who's read the Screwtape Letters? It's a great book. You need to read it. If you want to kind of get an interesting and captivating, albeit fictional, perspective on temptation and how it kind of can work itself out in the life of God's people. But he published this book, uh, the Screwtape Letters, it's a fictional account, uh, basically a fictional collection of letters between two devils, two demons, two tempting demons. Uncle Screwtape is sort of the primary character. He's the, he's the lead tempter, and he's writing letters to sort of instruct his protege, Wormwood, as they're trying to tempt this human person, referred to in the book as the patient, trying to tempt him away from devotion to the Lord. I want you to listen as I read an excerpt from the Screwtape Letters in consideration of this principle of trying to work in our own strength and find ourselves in this perpetual state of ever-increasing resignation and resentment and even self-pity. This is Screwtape talking to his protege, Wormwood. He says, you see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. And the point is, is instead of trying harder, we need to learn to trust more. That's, that's the point of this verse. It's not about trying harder. It's about surrendering more consistently, about trusting the Lord more, because God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide the way of escape. 
I'm going to ask you a question for reflection, not to answer out loud. But if you were honest with yourself, would you have to acknowledge that in reading this verse about God's faithfulness, that He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, and that He will provide the way of escape, were you not inclined to think, is that really true? It doesn't seem like that to me often. It's because we're inclined to doubt instead of trust more. This is, this is a promise from God's word that he is faithful and his care in the midst of trial is specific and it's intentional. And, and it doesn't just begin and end with this small verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The, 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 the appeal of Scripture is for us to completely surrender ourselves to the faithful provision and care of a loving Heavenly Father. To entrust ourselves to Him completely. You see this in an appeal from the Savior Himself in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the heartbeat of the Savior. The the, the cry of the Savior is not, work harder, I'll be over here. It's an appeal for those who are weary and heavy laden to come. And to take upon yourself his yoke. Because it's a burden that's light. And we can learn as we take this light yoke up. And we can find rest as we do this. This is the appeal of Christ himself. Not try harder. Not work harder. Not pull up your spiritual bootstraps and do it yourself. Surrender. Come Lay your life and your confidences and your weaknesses before me and trust my faithfulness and my provision. You see this all over the New Testament. Just a few affirmations from the apostles. You have this appeal from the Savior. You have the affirmation of the apostles. The apostle Paul, listen to his confidence in Philippians chapter 1. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is expressing complete confidence, not in the, the, uh, the Philippians' ability to work harder and do better. His confidence, speaking on their behalf, is in what the Lord is going to do to complete the work that he began. James, chapter 4, says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Surrender. Turn yourself over to the Lord. Then it says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
And if you didn't understand the the command to submit yourselves to the Lord, let me repeat it in a different way. Verse 8, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. This is not overcoming temptation by trying harder. 1 John chapter 5, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Why? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, in our struggle with temptation and sin, it is a struggle for us to trust the Lord more. It is a struggle to surrender our thinking and our habits and our future and our anxieties and our concerns fully and completely to the Lord. And it's, it's, it's in placing that confidence, that trust, that faith in the Lord that brings about the victory of overcoming the world. I want to take a moment to talk about this, not really talk about it, but just to read at length from Ephesians, because this is the actual ordained purpose of redemption. I mean, you want to talk about getting heavy and deep and big and wide? This is not just a helpful tip for us to be moment by moment victorious over this temptation and that temptation. That Believers being characterized by those who overcome, being characterized by those who are standing firm, is the ordained purpose of your very redemption and mine. Listen to a lengthy section of Ephesians chapter 1 and even on into chapter 2 because I I, I don't want to comment on this. This is... This is such rich description of God's redemptive purpose and his work in equipping us for the struggle against sin and temptation. Listen to starting in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. High-minded, in the counsels of God, before time began kind of stuff here. But it goes on. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, now we're getting down to brass tacks, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Getting closer to the ground level now. For this reason, Paul, writing to the believers at Ephesus, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Apostle Paul doesn't go to this place with the Ephesians in this part of the discourse of saying, work harder, try harder. He's saying, transcendently, in the counsels of God, according to the wisdom and purpose, sovereign purpose of God, this is redemption. This is what's happened in your salvation. He begins to bring it down closer and closer to the ground level, to the point where now he's praying for these believers, and here's what he's praying, that they would understand some things, that they would know some things, that they would have these truths rooted deeply in their souls and in their hearts and in their minds. And then chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also, excuse me, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I I am convinced that if we can hold on to this grand vision of our redemption, this grand purpose of God's work of salvation in us, 
this immense and limitless provision and power that we have in the Spirit and in Christ Jesus and through His Word. And if we understand that He has called us to Himself, He has made us His workmanship in Christ, and that He has even prepared good works that we are to walk in, works that He prepared before time began, it certainly at minimum, changes the perspective on temptation and trial. And hopefully it moves us away from just a failing, try-harder mindset. I'm not going to try harder. I'm going to trust more. I'm going to believe this truth to be true. I'm going I'm to try to to think about why the Apostle Paul would pray such a prayer for the Ephesians, that they would understand these things, that these things would be rooted deeply within them, that they would know what is the hope to which he has called us, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It certainly moves us at least out of the petty notion that we can bootstrap our way through this. But much more than that, it it empowers us, it enlivens our souls, it gives us clear vision on what we must do to walk in faithfulness. And that is to have complete confidence that God himself is faithful. He will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability And in every temptation, he will provide a way of escape every time. We we must reorient our thinking around walking in faithfulness and dealing with sin and temptation. It really is about our trust in the Lord more than it is about our menial, short-sighted efforts. The second that we bootstrap ourselves in the face of temptation and apply the try-harder method toward overcoming temptation is the second we're victorious in one temptation and we fall in the next. But as we grow in our confidence and trust in the Lord's faithfulness and in His real work of redemption, then we'll have victory over temptation. We'll walk in faithfulness. We'll have power to endure anything that comes our way. Anything. Again, note this is not a statement of self-confidence. It's a statement of complete confidence in the promises of God. We can trust Him. Well, if we're to faithfully, if we're to walk faithfully, I should say, in a world of idols, not only must we resist this prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history and also resist, resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness, but we also must recognize the true nature of communal fellowship in Christ. This is verses 14 to 18. 
must recognize the true nature of communal fellowship in Christ, and then also we must recognize the true nature of idolatry's corrupting influence and its effect. So these are sort of two points. Uh, I'm listing them as two different points, but we really could combine this into a single point of sharp contrast. In the text, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul just making a, a contrasting point out of these two different sides of, uh, of the argument. But for our sake, to kind of work our way toward understanding what he's instructing us in, we're going to have it break it out into two points. The first one is for us to recognize the true nature of communal fellowship in Christ. And then we'll compare it or contrast it, I should say, with this, the nature of idolatry's corrupting influence. But this is, this is a contrast between, between two utterly incompatible realities. You, you have this contrast between the Lord's table and basically an idolatrous feast. That's kind of the, the imagery that he's, he's putting forward here. And again, we'll take them up individually as an initial step. And just for the next few moments, we'll take up this first one. Excuse me, this first one. Uh, it, says, uh, it says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in, uh, is it not, excuse me, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Now what we're coming to here is we're basically coming to Paul's closing argument of this larger section that we began way back in chapter 8. He's sort of wrapping up this broad and winding discussion around uh, Christian liberties, eating food sacrificed to idols as a Christian liberty, but also as a provocation to a weaker believer And then moving into denying your own liberties for the sake of another. And then wrapping up here in chapter 10 with a more pointed focus on idolatry in particular. But this is kind of Paul wrapping this up. And you can kind of see it in the the text there in verse 14. Because he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Sort of like this roundhouse summary statement. Bottom line, to sum up, flee from idolatry. And then he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. This is sort of the language of a, of a conclusion or a closing argument. So to kind of succinctly tie this up with a bow, we could kind of look at it like this. If you understand that your freedom in Christ is not a license to do whatever the Lord does not explicitly prohibit, nor is it a cause for flaunting your liberties without concern for the conscience of other believers or your own testimony before unbelievers. And if you recognize that true freedom is most powerfully demonstrated through willing sacrifice for the sake of another rather than defending your individual rights. By the way, this is going to be the longest sentence you've ever heard. (laughs) And... If you have taken full stock of the many documented examples throughout redemptive history in which God's people turned God's grace and provision into an opportunity for carnal indulgence and idolatry and suffered the devastating consequences for their unfaithfulness. And if you clearly understand that what happened with them could just as easily happen with you, therefore you must take heed lest you fall. 
And if you fully trust in the Lord's faithfulness to provide for your every need in and through every trial and temptation so that you always have a way of escape and the ability to endure, then doesn't it only stand to reason that you must flee from idolatry rather than pursue actions and associations that could lead you into it? Now, now let's think back a little bit. There was, there was in Corinth, as we've seen, a, a level of hubris, a level of pride, a, a level of pride in one's knowledge. The, these things that I have come to understand about my Christian walk and my spirituality and Christian doctrine. And, and it was that kind of, of foolish, self-centered pride that was leading some of the believers in Corinth to say things like, an idol isn't anything, right? Everybody knows that. An idol's nothing. We, 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 we are, there's one God, one true God, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and in whom we have salvation, who bought us and purchased us with His own blood. I mean, we know these things. So eating food sacrificed to idols is nothing because an idol is nothing, right? So what's the problem? I'm going I'm to eat the food sacrificed to idols, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to traffic in the associations in the places where that's happening. Because everybody knows that an idol is nothing. And the Apostle Paul would come along and say, that's right, an idol is nothing. But you are flaunting your liberty to the exclusion of love for your brothers. And to the exclusion of concern for your testimony. And ultimately, that kind of flaunting pride-motivated exercise of what might be a genuine Christian liberty puts you on the precipice of falling like God's people have done over and over and over and over and over again. So the, the lesson in thinking about Christian liberty is a lesson for the believer in the context of a communal fellowship of what I need to be willing to set aside in my freedom, rather than what I have a right to lay hold of and to claim and to do in my freedom. And it's motivated by a desire to have the kind of testimony that no one would ever mistake where I stand. That I'm not going to pursue associations. I'm not going to engage in activities and environments where people could look on and begin to question. Who is that and what are they really about? I thought they were this, but maybe they're not this. It's a little confusing. That's why the Apostle Paul comes to this sort of summary conclusion, similar to what he came to in the whole matter of sexual immorality, which as we've talked about is sort of the... the, partner sin and indulgence to idolatry, he says, your responsibility, your strategy is very simple. Run. Run away. This word for flee is an aggressive verb, an aggressive verbal command to vacate the scene. Let dust be the only thing visible as you track out of there. So here's, here's what we're kind of beginning to see here as we think about this in the context of the local church. That points of idolatry 
or the potential for idolatry comes along in prominent ways when we are feeling especially certain about our spiritual position and our freedoms and liberties in Christ. That, that's when we become most susceptible. The point is, is that we may be strong and we may have knowledge about true things. But over and over and over again, what we see, not only in this particular passage, but all throughout Scripture, are exhortations toward warning against the folly of pride. And a complete underestimation of the devices of the enemy. And a complete diminishment of the potential weaknesses of our own flesh and our own desires that can be lured away into sin. This is what he's calling us to recognize in the context of our communal fellowship. He has this reference here to the cup of blessing and the bread that we break. And he uses this term here of participation. That is the term koinonia. This is about the fellowship. We're going to talk, not next week, but week after next, we're going to talk more at length about um, different views on the Lord's Supper, on communion. But for the sake of just kind of wrapping up our thinking in this particular point, the Apostle Paul is calling them back to a recognition that they are a part of a community of believers that is characterized by a sharing in common confession and in common salvation that was purchased by the very blood of Christ himself. And that is sort of illustrated in the bread or the body of Christ, we being his spiritual body. So that when we, when we come together as God's people, whether we're coming together for this time or for corporate worship or other times of fellowship, and certainly when we come before the Lord's table, there is a a need for us to consider deeply and profoundly the true nature of this communal fellowship that we share that is poignantly illustrated and demonstrated and even affirmed in the taking of the Lord's table. We see that this has been completely diminished and and completely sort of minimized in the minds of the Corinthians, especially when we get to chapter 11. We're going to see that they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And they were bringing judgment upon themselves in so doing. So this is not some narrow call to God's people to make sure that every time in the moment you're taking communion that you say sort of a, cleansing, Lord, forgive me kind of prayer, but that more broadly that you and I recognize what is the true nature of our koinonia, our communal fellowship in Christ as the body of Christ, as those who are the partakers of, the the participants in the blood of Christ that is symbolized in the partaking of the elements of the Lord's table. 
We, we, we need to recognize the true nature of this communal fellowship. And in so doing, that has significant bearing on how we conduct ourselves as it relates to matters of sin and temptation and certainly of idolatry. Now, he's going to move into a place of drawing the distinction between the practice that was taking place in Corinth of associations with actual idolatrous feasting and really too close of an association with the practices of idolatry. But in terms of the first part of this argument, he's kind of taking us back to this fundamental flaw in the thinking of the Corinthians, and that is what I do in exercising my legitimate Christian freedoms has no bearing on anybody else because it's based upon what I know to be true. And what I know to be true is, in fact, true. The Apostle Paul would affirm what I know to be true. He affirmed it, yes. An idol is nothing. But we are called to understand our life in Christ as not an autonomous individual exercise. We have been saved individually and then put into communal fellowship with other saved people. And so our understanding of that, the nature of that fellowship and what it calls us to, what it compels us toward, should serve as a hedge against unfaithfulness in the midst of an idolatrous world. A world that is coming unhinged in its manifestations of idolatry and wickedness. Understanding that we are a part of one another that we are knit together in fellowship, and it is a fellowship that is in Christ. It is, it is symbolized even in the partaking of the Lord's table, this intimate fellowship in Christ, should compel us toward faithfulness and guard us against compromise. Well, next time, we'll, as I said, we'll take the opportunity in this particular section to look at Uh, what our particular view is of the Lord's table and maybe compare it to some other views that are most common, um, just as a matter of theology and just kind of making sure we understand uh, doctrinally where we stand on these matters. But God help us to, to continue to walk in faithfulness. God help us to overcome temptation, not because we try harder, but because we trust more. God help us to walk in faithfulness because we recognize that we are walking in common fellowship. It's not just about our life and our freedoms. It's about the testimony and the witness that we bring to bear on those around us in the life of the church as well as in the community writ large to whom we're to be a light. Let's pray.